Welcome back to the Revolution in Ideology podcast. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And uh, we are back after a little bit of a hiatus. Uh, Nick went through a little bit of transition, uh, moving, uh, the great escape, the great escape from Estados Unidos. Where'd you go, That's man? Right. Spain. Love it. Love it. Uh, living the good life now. Um, That's right. <laughs> living the good life now. Uh, we're back here a little bit with... Uh, kind of a myth is America um, episode, but maybe also a little bit of a ideology episode. We're going to have a little bit of a discussion here uh, about the uh, Confederate flag, the stars and bars, whatever you want to call it, right? Like, And uh, we're going to have a conversation about um, its symbolism. And then we're also going to have a little bit of a conversation about its history. And then we're going to have a little, another conversation about um, the problematic like symbol that it, that, that it represents now and why the overly cliche argument about how it's tied to some sort of romanticized notion of Southern culture and heritage is just absolutely like not true. It's, it's kind of embarrassing in a way. Or if it is. Uh, uh, really emblematic of Southern heritage and culture. It's a very negative part of that Southern um, culture and heritage. <laughs> Anything you want to like kind of chime in on? I've been thinking about it a lot lately because, you know, it's it's been in the news, obviously, uh, off and on for the, like the past decade, even longer than the past decade, but it's been off and on in the news. But recently there's been kind of like an upsurge, um, even in uh, what we're hearing in conversations online, even in classrooms of people like really trying to like bring this thing back and like defend it and and, and resurrect its its former glory, I, I guess, if, if losing a war rather handily in four years is glory, um, it, it's former it's former uh, meaning is it's 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 back. It's back and it's bad and it's something that we never had. No. Um, okay. Yeah, I think right. that this, for me, it, I mean, we'll talk about this more obviously in detail, but it represents an overarching problem that the United States has in how it handles its ugly past, honestly. But we'll get more into that in a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, we will definitely get into the symbolism, one of these episodes coming up and the symbolism of like the actual Stars and Stripes and and and, and the real story behind things like the Star Spangled Banner, the, the epic poem and 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 those types of things. That's that's for a future episode. And we can argue that those are also um, symbols that have been um, turned into celebratory narratives of of like wrongful omission and uh, burying the past and so on and so forth. But but this this is more poignant. Like I, I would argue it's exponentially more poignant. This, this flag is much more um, tied to a past of oppression. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what we really want to talk about. So let's dig right into some of that past. Um, okay. So I'm actually going to read, I, I, I think, it's more proper given that both Nick and myself are going to be inherently biased against this flag to actually read from people that are um, actually kind of for the flag. We'll start with that. And um, one of those individuals is a man named uh, David Sansing. And I'm going to just directly read as he gives us a, a pretty objective history of like of, of the stars and bars and the Southern flag. He does this for actually the government of Mississippi. It's an online publication of the Mississippi Historical Society, the article um, or the feature story he gives us is called a brief history of the confederate flags i'm not going to read the whole thing because it's 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 even though it's brief history it's still long enough to where it'd be get kind of boring in a podcast i just want to read the part about the um famous version of the uh confederate flag which is officially we'll start here called the beauregard battle flag so this flag the famous one um that we all know is is called the beauregard battle flag and in his words sansing's words he says beauregard a southern general at the time 
had already anticipated the need for a new battle flag, and he wrote to William P. Miles, chairman of the House Military Affairs Committee of the Confederate Congress, suggesting the adoption of a new national flag. Um, so, of course, like mid-Civil War, they're already thinking the, the secession is going to work, they're going to be free. Any thoughts on that? I mean, clearly, it doesn't work out that way. It doesn't work out that way for Beauregard and the boys. Yeah. <laughs> um, failing in that effort, Beauregard asked his Louisiana officers to suggest some possible new designs for a battle flag. Uh, again, I am directly quoting Sansing here. These are not my words. When it became known that a new battle flag would soon be adopted, the high command was inundated with designs and drafts. Of the many different designs and configurations, the basic pattern that appeared most often was a cross of various shapes emblazoned with stars. The colors of red, white, and blue were also prominent. After lengthy consideration was given to various designs, Johnston and Quartermaster General William L. Cabell met with Beauregard at his headquarters in Virginia on September 1861 to finalize des the design of the new battle flag. Johnston proposed a flag in the shape of an ellipse with a red field and a blue saltier, a diagonal cross, often called St. Andrew's Cross, containing a white star for each Confederate state. That's like the original plan. Beauregard has suggested in his letter to Congressman Miles a square or rectangular design consisting of a blue field with a red cross containing gold stars. It appears from the correspondence that Beauregard favored either a Latin cross, a crucifix, or a Greek cross, St. George's, rather than the diagonal cross of St. Andrew. Congressman Miles found Beauregard's color combination to be contrary to the laws of heraldry and suggested a blue saltier with white stars on a field of red. Deferring to Miles' knowledge of heraldry, Beauregard accepted his modifications and included them in his final proposal to Johnston and Cabell. As the three Confederate officers were considering the design of the battle flag, Cabell indicated that Beauregard's design would be easier and quicker to produce than Johnston's and there would be no waste of cloth in a square or a rectangular flag. Johnston, though he outranked Beauregard, accepted Beauregard's design and directed that the new battle flag be a perfect square. So let's just pause there for a second. Oftentimes when we see this being like flown um, to this day by like white supremacists, it's not even the square. It's a rectangle. Mm -hmm. The second thing that I also thought of when I kind of went through this passage, Nick, is, and we often teach this in like our resistance and revolution class and our stateless class and things along those lines, is like what you do want when you are creating symbolism for any sort of resistance is something that is easy to reproduce, right? Why would you want that? I mean, it gives it, it gives it wings. No, it, it makes it. <laughs> it's like Red Bull, man. Yeah. It gives it the greatest chance that it will be widely adopted and it can be easily mass produced. In our revolution class, we say, right, the logo for your movement should easily be spray paintable on a building, right? Like that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Continuing with Sansing here, and I quote, General Bradley T. Johnson, whose Maryland regiment fought with the Confederacy at Manassas, had seen a watercolor drawing of the original design and described the flag several years later as a red square on which was displayed a blue St. Andrew's cross bordered with white and charged with thir 13 white five-pointed stars. He referred to this design as Beauregard's battle flag. Both Johnston and Beauregard were anxious to have new flags prepared before the next military engagement. They cautioned Cabell to keep the design and shape of the new emblem to, uh, a secret to prevent federal forces from counterfeiting the flag and causing more confusion on the field of battle. Johnston's hope for secrecy was dashed when he arranged for about 75 women in Richmond to begin making the new flags. The new design could be seen all over the Confederate capital the day, the day after its adoption. Beauregard and some of the other officers urged the Confederate Congress to adopt the new design as the national flag of the Confederacy, but the Congress declined to do so. Cabell issued orders to quartermasters throughout the Army of the Potomac to provide the new battle flag to all their fighting units. On October 1st of 1861, the Confederate War Department authorized the use of the new battle flag by the Army of the Potomac 
which was later renamed the Army of North Virginia by General Robert E. Lee. The War Department did not direct other Confederate armies to adopt the new design, although many of the Confederate armies east of the Mississippi did eventually use the Beauregard flag. When Beauregard assumed command of the Confederate forces in Tennessee in early 1862, he found that General Leonidas Polk had already adopted a flag similar to the one I had designed for the Army of the Potomac. Beauregard replaced Polk's flag with this battle flag. In September of 1862, when Beauregard was reassigned to Charleston, he substituted the same banner for the state flag and then principally used in South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. Although the Beauregard flag was perhaps the emblem most widely used by Southern troops, it was never made the official battle flag of the Confederate Army, and there were many other battle flags of varying style, shapes, and colors used by rebel forces during the Civil War. Done. Okay, so we're done with Sansig now. Like I said, it was a relatively just like straightforward, fair, like objective history of this specific flag. The very famous, what is probably erroneously called the Stars and Bars. Stars and Bars actually refers to a flag before this one, but the name crossed over. What do you think of this history, Nick? I mean, it's... In terms of like that... that, It's like uneventful. In terms of this argument about culture and heritage and shit like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's what I mean is like, it doesn't really represent... It doesn't have a lot of meaning because the history itself is like kind of just like, okay, cool. It's uneventful. It never, you know, it was never even officially really the flag. It was just like an idea that never really took off for the most part. And clearly if they had won, it would have represented something, but they didn't. So it had like a brief moment where it was almost something, but it was really never anything. Well, and it, it was merely designed for efficacy. So, and I kind of skipped right. this part because I, I think it was self-explanatory because of all the confusion on the battlefields on whose side was on whose side, right? Because prior to this, a lot of the Southern states were just using like their state flag in battle and they didn't necessarily, like there was probably some, um, why can't I think of the word when you're shooting your own team? Um, why can't I think of that? Friendly fire. There's probably some friendly fire or confusion on the battlefield. And this was, it was merely a tactic to simplify battle, right? Yep to streamline it. That's all it was. There is no heritage before of this flag before 1861. So if we are going to over romanticize like Southern past and Southern values and all these things, it didn't exist before 1861. There's nothing right. to romanticize there. Mm-hmm. In terms of what transpires after or during the war, well, first and foremost, we just learned it was never officially adopted as the only flag of the Confederate army, nor was it officially adopted as the flag of the Confederate States of America. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it doesn't have a lot of credibility as being like represented. At, uh, uh, how we twist the logic to say that it represented the South is beyond me because it never did. You know what I mean? Like it never officially did at all. It was merely used on the battlefield and sparingly at that. Right after the war, it became a symbol of like like the whole idea of the lost cause, right? That whole, right. again, an overly romanticized ideal of what the Southern fight was really about. And of course, there's a whole nother episode there that we need to unpack regarding like what's like states' rights. This, we, the war was really about states' rights. Yes, yes, idiots, but the state right, the most predominant state right that people were upset with was what state right? Exactly. Anytime that anyone ever says that, that's what I come back with, right? It was about states' rights. Which state right? 
rich state <laughs> right to right. own human beings exactly. right like, like exactly. unbelievable okay but moving on here immediately afterwards the flag did make appearances at like the numerous events that took place um in the south commemorating like the fall of confederate soldiers and their heroism and them dying for this great rebellious cause again it's the lost cause right like that it, it became very popular in like these ceremonies by the time we get to like um, right after like the reconstruction period, or excuse me, a little bit during the reconstruction period, the Ku Klux Klan recently formed during the reconstruction period adopted it as its symbol. Okay. So now we want to talk Southern heritage. A major adopter of this flag as its symbol is the KKK. Is this Southern heritage? Is this Southern culture? I mean, I would argue, yes. Is this something that you should be prideful for in 2021? I mean, this just solidifies its legacy of representing white supremacy. That's that's what it does. But I mean, is that what we would call? So when you hear, again, this just embarrassing argument made by people that fly the Confederate flag, that it means more than than racism, it's it's whatever. When But this is the heritage that we're talking about, like this or what we're really insinuating is that Southern heritage is racism. No, exactly. That's what I was about to say. Southern heritage is racism. There's no disconnecting that. And like, yes, I know that the entire South wasn't about racism. Like there were other things that went on there. Right. We can't simplify it to this one thing. But the Civil War was for sure. And the flag does represent racist oppression. Right. And we don't even necessarily want to let the North off the hook in terms of like racism and stuff like that. The North obviously has, has to this day, similar racial issues, although they're less pronounced. I would argue the North is just not as honest about as the South about its racism. But I mean, one need look no further than the various like race riots that break out in the 1960s and 70s in Northern cities like Detroit or Newark or whatever to, to, to show that racism was very prominent there as well. Maybe more, um, how would I put it? It's not even clandestine is not the word I'm looking for. Maybe a more subtle, like systematic yeah. form of racism rather yeah, than the outright in use, your face, like, like really crosses in your Yeah. Is that like the South was just blatant individual oppression where the North was much more at least shifted towards being more systematic in nature. To further double down on the racist um, heritage of the Stars and Bars or the Confederate flag or whatever we're to, the Beauregard battle flag, in 1948, the Dex- Dixie Crap Party, like, so we're, we're post-World War II, just before, like, that very famous era of, like, civil rights heritage, right? Like, just before we get, like, Montgomery bus boycotts and things along those lines and the rise of Dr. King and the rise of Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael and so on and so forth, just before this period, the Dixie Crap Party um, already saw the writing on the wall that their quote unquote way of life of segregation and Jim Crow was going to go away, whether they liked it or not. So they formed, of course, a separatist party. And that party's main platform was to maintain racial segregation in education, in transportation, in politics, etc. So it became the official flag of a pro-segregationist party. What do you think? Let's say Political just for party. a second, by argument's sake, that before it was adopted by the Ku Klux Klan, that it didn't represent white supremacy. Let's just argue for argument's sake. Well, in the entire, what are we, what are we at, 80, 60 years of the history of this flag, there's only a couple where it didn't represent white supremacy. The entire rest of the history, whether it's the Ku Klux Klan, whether it's the Dixie Party, etc., very clearly is white supremacist. There's no getting around it. 
Right. I mean, it's the main flag, of course, the very famous Ole Miss, right? Ole Miss, like University of Mississippi, that's like their symbol, right? Running Rebels, that's their mascot and so on and so forth. Well, what are you celebrating here at this university? We know very well during the civil rights period, and we've probably talked about it on a prior episode. If we haven't, we'll get to it. But like like literally, like the lost year of like, like these are things that are taking place throughout the South. And University of Mississippi had numerous race riots as well, right? Like we know this just for wanting to include students of color in the 1950s and 60s, right? Like, and that's their, that, that was the university symbol. So like every time, every example of this flag being flown in, in Southern history or United States history on a wider scale, there has been like a racial orientation to it. And it is a flag of oppression. How, I guess what, and now I'm going to bring you in even more as the sociologist, what do you think like not the psychologist, the sociologist, is the social rationale for its perpetual existence. Like, how do you think people are, and I'll use the word again, rationalizing it as some sort of symbol of, again, a romanticized lost past? I mean, I just have to be frank and say, I don't think that they are. I don't think that they are rationalizing it. I think that that's their defense mechanism. When you challenge them on it, their defense mechanism is to say, oh, it just represents cultural heritage. I'm not racist. But we all know what that flag means. Every single one of us. There's no debating it. We all know it's a way to be racist without being blatantly racist. It's a way to mask and disguise white supremacy without being blatantly white supremacist. Because you can always fall back on Oh, it's not racist. It just represents my Southern heritage and it represents uh, resisting the government and it represents this idea of state rights. It doesn't represent like racism per se. We all know it represents racism. Just stop uh, is what I want to say. Just stop. We all know that it represents white supremacy. Just stop with the rationalization. We know. To be unequivocally clear here, if we are going to argue that it is a heritage, that it's tied to heritage and culture, I must stress that that is a heritage and culture at one point based on actual slavery, right? The actual oppression and, 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 and trading of humans as and treating them as property and oppression and all of the things that are tied to it. Like, so if, if your culture and heritage, if your economic base is a slave based economy, then that's what you're also celebrating. And that slave-based economy is decided upon racially, then it is racist in nature. Your culture and heritage is racist in nature, and that's what you're celebrating through the symbolism, right? The Southern economy does not work at that time without a slave-based economy. We saw, of course, the, the disaster of Reconstruction. Once we move into the Reconstruction era and that flag remains a symbol, this time of the KKK, in some sort of resistance to being forced to be at least semi-human, to have some sort of moral backbone, which they didn't, it remains a racist symbol, right? The Ku Klux Klan is a racist organization and they adopt it as their symbol during the Reconstruction period. It then becomes a symbol of segregation, which again is also predicated on racial, like a racial hierarchy. There is no ideal or material argument that is genuine that can, that can be made that this is not a symbol of a racist past. Agreed. Yeah, and it's funny to me because if you want a symbol that represents resistance to the government, there are many of them, right? So many. There, there are anarchist flags, even the libertarian flag. I mean, we could go on and on and on. Why pick this one if you aren't a little bit racist? 
You know what I mean? It, it makes no sense. It makes we no sense whatsoever. And we don't give other people, other symbols, um, the same pass that we're willing to give this one. Why? And you know what symbol I'm talking about. It was really famous in the 1930s in Germany. Again, it's not even originally a German symbol. It, we can tr- we can trace its origins all the way down to Southeast Asia, right? Like yep. cent- not even century, millennia ago. This is an old symbol. But once it became adopted by the National Socialist Party of Germany in the 1930s and 40s, and it was used as like a symbol of what they did, it's no longer cool. Like I get that, like there's some, you know, edgy white supremacists out there that'll still have it hanging in their room or some of them maybe even get a tattoo of it in prison or whatever. Neat. Mm-hmm. You're really neat people. But society has generally said, no, we're, we're good. We don't need that anywhere. Why not with right. this one? <sighs> because I think like this goes back to what I was talking about earlier about how I think this is a, it's not uniquely American like United States, but it's pretty close that we haven't faced really really faced our racist history like the swastika still exists in germany it's everywhere but it's in museums because that's where the history that you have completely confronted and compartmentalized as something that we don't ever want to do and try to have handled you relegate that to the museums That's where you go to learn about history. So if you say this is our cultural heritage, great. There should be cultural heritage museums. In fact, there are. And that's where the flag should be. That's where you, all of that material should be relegated to. The same goes in the same conversation, right, about Confederate statues. Everyone's mad that they're getting torn down and blah, blah, blah. That's fine. If you want to celebrate that heritage, it should not be in the square of the city. It should be in the museum. And I love this example that most people don't know about, but I think is awesome, is Hungary. There's a museum in Hungary called Momento Park. And when communism was ousted from Hungary, they took all the statues and all the symbolism and they threw it all outside of the city. So, and there it's set right, just piled outside of the city for some time. And so they created an open air museum. You can look at pictures, it's called Memento Park. I've been there twice actually. And it's just statues of, you know, Marx and Angles. In fact, when you walk in, they have a huge, uh, huge statues of Marx and Angles and the Red Army and like all of these, these things that are the history of communism because they don't belong in the city anymore. They are a part of the, but they are an important part of the history of that country. But rather than still representing that on the back of their Dodge Rams, spoiler, there's no Dodge Rams in Hungary, but you get the idea. (laughs) Instead of that, they put it outside the city in its own museum. And that's where you go to learn about the communist part of Hungary's history. The same should be true for the, the civil war, racist, white supremacist part of United States history. It should be relegated to the museums. And yes, it is an important part of American history. And we should treat it as history not current, not present. It is history. And we need to really, really work as a country to face that history, not only just to face it and confront how horrific it was, but really start to, what's the word I want to use? Like repair. Atone, reparations. Atone Atone and reparations. Atone Mm -hmm. for the ills that were done to so many people for so long that are still being done as a result of this history. And to learn about it, you go to the museum and that's where it should belong. But we have not had those conversations in our country. We are so far behind the rest of the world in this regard. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, well, that that yeah, we're you're preaching to the choir here, brother. Um, but like, yeah, like I said, learning from the past is not something um, we're very good at uh, as a society here. But uh, you've already picked up on that. All of I mean, you. Really from our... We'll do it. We'll we'll tear apart the history of other countries, right? That's what we do. But as far as right. our own, we want nothing to do with it. Yeah. Absolutely nothing to do with it. But and again, and that gets into why, like, why, why we do what we do, whether it's in the classroom on this pod is is, is to de- deconstruct that past um, to actually like learn from it. Um, and then also like be able to understand why things are the way they are today. Why is this part of our society broken? Why is this part of our society broken? Why is this part of our society broken? It's because we've never actually bothered to engage and face that past. Like we'll give it like lip service, but we're not willing to actually do the hard part. And a lot of it's tied to like identity. I get that. And basically what we're insinuating to a whole host of, of, of white supremacists is that your identity is wrong and in identity politics, uh, that's, that's apparently not PC anymore, but it is okay. It is okay to just say that if your identity is tied to racism, you're wrong. You're not a good person. We can say, like, when did we, when did that, when did it become not okay to say that to these people? Well, I mean, and millions of Germans went back to not being Nazis after the war. Like you can <laughs> change, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> that's possible. <laughs> Um, and that's always, like I said, a good example. I, I'm, not, I'm not insinuating that there aren't, you know, some neo-Nazi organizations right. in Germany. We know that there are, but they are um, few and far between and compared to like white supremacist organizations here in the United well, I mean, States. And it's highly criminalized, right? Yeah. Like, so the, the country as a whole decided we are not going back here. They and have to, to bear, put they policies have to, in place. You know, yeah. It has to be very like under underground, really. I mean, it has to be. Well, I think that's a good example of like the United States as a whole, eh, I guess I don't want to say as a whole, there are still significant pockets of the United States that have not fully agreed that we don't want to go back here. I think that's the problem. And they're the ones that are flying the Confederate flag. But bear in mind, I mean, just what, what, four years ago, we had an entire campaign run by trying to take America back to some sort of un, un like forgotten past or some romanticized yep. past. So like 100%. people are not willing to let that go, right? Mm-hmm. They're not willing yeah. to let that go here. Um, okay. So verdict is Confederate flag racist as hell. Um, yeah. I don't even know if we needed to talk about it too. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. I think we're good <laughs> here. Any other thoughts? Uh, God, I could go on for so, so long about this. Just... But no, I guess not. Today's a shorty. Like, We're doing yeah, a shorty. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, there's so much to go into about the history of the United States and how we have not yet sort of reconciled with our past. But this is just one example of that. It's just, it, it, to me, it's really, really inexcusable. This is one of the things that like, there's no argument to be made on the other side. I mean, it's just embarrassing. You know. Um, well, but for more on that, new listeners, uh, we have an entire series called Myth is America, where we've basically gone in order of major events up through, I think we're just before like the actual Civil War, if I'm honest, at least in terms of order. There might even be some other episodes that are dotted that are a little bit more modern that we decided to just, uh, of course, record on a whim, the one on Alcatraz, for example. But well, we I mean, do. neither we... of us even like to talk about the Civil War historically because it's just so boring. Yeah, it is a boring, boring thing to talk about. But uh, anyway, like... Like, again, listeners, go back, check out the Myth of America series if you want more on this uh, buried U.S. past and its consequences for today. Other than that, Nick, take us out. You can find us online at revolutionandideology.com. We are on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. If you're listening to this in a podcast uh, application, leave us a rating and a comment. If you're watching this on YouTube, uh, like and subscribe and uh, leave us a comment. 
if you really, really love what we're doing, you can subscribe to us on Patreon, patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Uh, yeah, I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.